In July of 1890, Oscar Wilde published his famous novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The story centers on a young and handsome man named Dorian Gray who decides to have his portrait painted. Once his portrait is finished, though, Dorian gazes longingly at it, thinking, if only we could reverse roles, change places, then I could remain youthful and unchanged forever, while my portrait would do all the aging. Eventually, at great expense to himself, Dorian gets his wish. He remains a handsome young man, while the portrait, hidden away in the attic, begins to age. As the tale continues, we learn that while Dorian enjoys his physical beauty, the portrait begins to bear the consequences of the real man's behavior. Dorian makes a cruel comment, and the mouth on the portrait twists into a cruel grin. Dorian nurses hatred for a rival, and the eyes of the portrait narrow in rage. Dorian murders a man, and the hands of the portrait drip blood. Eventually, he finds himself face to face with the painting, and he recognizes that the terrible picture represents his inner self. He despises this painting so much that he slashes it with a knife. The picture vanishes. And Dorian Gray is discovered by a servant lying dead on the floor with a knife plunged through his heart. The picture of Dorian Gray is a parable about how sin deceives, corrupts, and kills humanity. It's a powerful depiction of life apart from Christ. It's a picture of a life that needs rescuing. In fact, it's a picture of us all. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3 this morning, verses 3 through 7. And the theme of this chapter seems to be good works. God's good works and our good works. And to cover the entire chapter today would uh, take entirely too long. And so this week we're going to tackle the heart of the passage together and consider God's good work. Next week, we'll look at our own. So don't worry about the first few verses. We're, we're going to get to them next week along with the passages, at, or the text at the end of the book. But let's consider our, the verses before us this morning. You can think of them as a divine makeover of sorts, if you will. And so your outline will follow that pattern. There will be a before section in verse 3 and an after section in verses 4 through seven, and the main idea that will bind the before and after together is this: the one who takes the sun takes all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of coming together, Lord. Uh, even without heat this morning, we still feel the blessings of your presence. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so many good things. We pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and be our teacher now. Remind us of the glorious truth of the gospel and summon us to give you the worship that you are due once more. Meet us here. Amen. 
So in the first few verses of chapter 3, Paul has exhorted believers to show kindness and humility to everyone that they cross paths with. And here in verse 3, he's going to tell them why. And so we read, because or for, we also, we too, were once foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. reason that Christians should not count themselves superior to others is because they were once just like everyone else. Christians have no right to look down on anyone. The only reasons any of us have any peace with God is because of the grace of God, without which we would still be enslaved to sin. Further, we have not yet been made perfect And so when we act foolishly as Christians, our shame is greater. We know better. Perhaps it's for this reason that Paul lists foolishness as one of the primary descriptors of the person controlled by sin. If you remember, Psalm 14.1 asserts this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then goes on to describe the behavior of fools. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. To be foolish means to ignore God, to act as if God doesn't exist. The fool is the one who could care less about God's character and God's will. And ultimately, the the foolish person is someone who in disobedience rejects God's rule in favor of running their own life. Though this idea that you can be completely independent and have complete control over your whole life is a lie. I mean, every person is subject to someone or something because what you love rules you. What you love most rules your life. That's why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before or besides me. God and idols cannot coexist. I mean, Jesus echoes this teaching in Matthew chapter 6. He states that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and created things. You can't center your life on God and something else. Because ultimately, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also, friends, something or someone grips the heart of every person. Someone or something is your master. The only question is what or who. We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures. The fool is disobedient to God and has deceived him or herself into believing that freedom comes via the pursuit of worldly passions and pleasures, boasting all the while flaunting their shackles. Being enslaved to passions and pleasures, it doesn't sound all that bad. But the truth is, is that if you make anything other than God to be your God, your treasure, your source of meaning, it's eventually going to fail you. Trying to find fulfillment in in created things 
rather than the creator himself is like a fish trying to find a better quality of life outside of the water. It's foolish. We were created to worship God. And sin has jacked that all up. It's tricked us into worshiping ourselves and things. Everybody worships. Everyone. You can think of it like drowning. When you drown, you don't die from holding your breath. You die from breathing in water. When you're not breathing in air, you have to breathe in something. It's the same with spiritual breath. When you are not breathing in the glory of God, you will find something else to breathe. And our culture tells us that true freedom is rejecting all um, restrictions, all boundaries. But that's not true freedom. The Bible tells us we get enslaved to our passions and pleasures. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's finding the right ones. When we reject God, We become addicted to those things that we enjoy, controlled by them. Someone or something becomes our treasure, our very center, that to which we look for meaning and happiness. And the problem with idolatry is the problem with all fool's gold. It has no real power, no real value. If your treasure is not Jesus Christ, it will not be able to bear the weight of your happiness. It's like an old bridge with a sign, max max weight, two tons. If you're driving a tractor trailer filled with iron ore, don't drive across this bridge. It was not designed to bear that kind of weight. It will collapse. Anything that you look to for your source of meaning or for happiness other than God will fracture and come apart under that weight. Wonderful things and and wonderful people in this world, they're designed for us to enjoy unto the glory of God. When our delight terminates with God's good creation, with his good gifts, we not only miss out on the greater gift and the greater, deeper pleasure of glorifying God and giving him thanks for those things, we also set ourselves up for disappointment. Created things are not designed to bear the weight of worship. That's why I think so many marriages end in divorce, right? One spouse looks to the other spouse to make them happy. The people make crummy gods, and so this is a failing effort. The couple eventually lets one another down and then decides that they need to look for happiness elsewhere, probably in another person. And so they move on. It's always easier to look for fulfillment elsewhere and everywhere than it is to repent and to forgive. When we look for our meaning and our satisfaction in those things or those people which cannot give us meaning and satisfaction, we become patently insecure and consequently we live hatefully marked with malice and envy. We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Now I'd wager most of us 
do not think of ourselves as hateful. But I think the Bible shows us the truth of our own Dorian Gray portrait. It shows us our twisted and scarred inner selves. I think Jesus does this for us too in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Now, it is true that all people bear the image of God. People do awesome things. This is why just about anybody and anyone from all stripes and backgrounds can be really great philanthropists and neighbors. But I think sometimes this ability to do good emboldens the lie of our hearts and it obscures the truth about us, which is that we need saving, that we are desperately wicked. It's our thought life that reveals the true nature of our hearts. For example, some idiot has the nerve to cut you off in traffic. They're just lucky you don't have time to pull your firearm. But hey, maybe they will get pulled over or wreck, or even better, maybe they'll spontaneously combust. Serve them, cuts you off. Are they out of their mind? Your know, malice is wishing that bad things would happen to people living in malice. Unbelievable, you think. That promotion should have been yours. How could they give it to her? She definitely does not deserve it. After all, you work way harder than she does, and she's late at least once a week. Envy is wanting someone else, wanting what someone else has and or wishing good things didn't happen to other people. Living in malice and envy. I won't lie, I have a little bit of envy when it comes to Alabama football, right? I don't want them to ever win another game. I want West Virginia to win them all. How about when you go to the grocery store? You work through it like some weird combination of an Olympic sprinter and a WWE wrestler. Nobody better get in your way. Last gallon of milk, it's yours. And you know that open checkout line, you're going to be the first one there. After all, you're busy, you're important. You've got things to do. Everyone else can wait. Hatred, in this sense, is hostility towards those that stand in the way of you getting your way. And it is the product of selfishness. Living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Forgiven? After what he put you through? After all the pain he's caused? No. You will never forgive him. You know, unforgiveness is a form of hatred. We're all in verse 3 somewhere. All of us. I'm quite certain if I could just take your thoughts from this past week and somehow project them up behind me so that everybody could see that you would be both thoroughly convicted and really embarrassed. We're all in verse 3. The Word of God confronts us with the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. It shows us our sin-twisted self, the Dorian Gray within. 
It tells us that the wages of sin is death and that we are sinners standing before the executioner's noose. Is there hope for Dorian Grays like us? And so we come to verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Jesus finds us dead from the self-inflicted, sin-riddled stab wound of sin, and He saves us. He saved us. It's not that we were good and he rewarded us or even that I did a part and he did a part. He's the only actor. I did all the sinning. He did all the saving. He's not in verse 3. I'm not in verse 4. You say, what's my part in salvation? Just to receive what he has done. That's all you can do. It's all you need to do. It's as if you, you suddenly woke up in the back of an ambulance. Hopefully Mike's not driving. It's as if you woke up in the back of an ambulance and there's tubes everywhere, got a mask on your face, and the EMT's standing over you. He says, you were in a terrible accident. You were about to die. But we got to you just in time. I saved you. He doesn't tell you that and then say, so get up and help me do the rest of my work here, all right? Run an IV in your left arm. No. It doesn't tell you to get up and help save yourself. Basically, it says, you lied there, I saved you, you have to continue to lie there while I do my work on you so that you can be healthy, more healthy. What happens in conversion is that you suddenly wake up to the good news that Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross in order to save you 2,000 years ago. Jesus doesn't save us because of the good things that we have done or because of our potential. He does it because of his love for us. He sees the sin-riddled version of you lying dead. He steps out of heaven to save you and to make you into your true self, the person that you were created to be, a worshiper of the one true God. Friends, God's love for you It's not an ethereal concept, but a substantial truth that appeared in the flesh. Jesus Christ shows you the heights of his love for you by going to the unspeakable depths of the cross. His love for mankind appeared. Appeared as a man, died as a man, rose from the dead as a man, and is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven as a man, and he will return as a man to make everything right for men and women who have been remade in his image. Jesus, the unique God-man, brings peace between God and men. Why would God rescue us when we have made ourselves his enemies? I think Paul tells us with one word in verse 4. You might recognize it. You might know a little bit of Greek and you didn't know it. I'm going to read it to you and see if you can figure out which word it is. Philanthropia. 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 This is the word from which we get our word philanthropy, meaning literally love of humanity. 
This is not a common word for the love of God. In fact, it only occurs here in the New Testament. Paul is saying that God's heart inclines him to do humanity's good. He is in the highest sense a philanthropist. If you are born again, Paul is saying, it's happened because of God's inclination to bless humanity and to bless you in particular. God is the great philanthropist. And the kindness of God leads him to save us. He saved us and his love appeared in the form of Jesus Christ. He put flesh on his love. God sees us as we are. He loves us as we are. He accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. He saves us. He makes us new. I mean, Paul goes to great lengths here to hone our understanding of this wonderful salvation. He wants to make sure that we know that salvation is all of grace. And he, does it, he lets us know that by utilizing negation in the next verse. He says, he saved us, and then immediately doesn't even skip to the next breath. It's in the same breath. Not by works. Not by works of righteousness that we had done. Paul has people in mind when he writes this. He knows the way that Justin Braun is wired. He knows the way you're wired. When something good happens to you, you default to something good happened to me because I did something good. That's not the gospel. He saved us because of his love for us. Friends, on your best day, you had nothing to give God. And if if you've never realized that, then you haven't been saved. We cannot work our way into heaven. Reconciliation with God comes not because of our works, but according to His mercy. His mercy is good. God doesn't operate the same way we do. I think sometimes when we're making difficult decisions, uh, one of the things I've done in the past, maybe you've done it, is you draw up that list of pros and cons. Right, draw a line down the middle of the page. Imagine if God did that with us. Pros and cons, right? See, all right, on the con side, why should God condemn us? And he said, oh, well, they're foolish, they're disobedient, they're deceived, they're enslaved to their sin, they're malicious, they're envious, they're hateful. Imagine him coming on the pro side. Uh, what reason should I save them? They're really good looking? Well, no, there's, there's nothing on that side. There's no reason that God should save us. But instead of doing a a pros and cons, God just writes on the page, my mercy, my love, my kindness. According to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. This word regeneration is an important one. And it's another way of speaking about the new birth or the second birth or being born again. That's what it means. And this word is actually only used in one other place in the entire New Testament. It's used in the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. This is what he says to the 12 apostles. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, which is a very loose translation of in the regeneration, I say to you in the new world, in the regeneration 
When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. John Piper explains, This is a reference to the rebirth of creation. It's like the saying in the new heavens and the new earth, which is found in Isaiah. Jesus conceives of the new birth as something that will happen to all, not just human beings. Humans are not the only beings that are fallen and defiled and disordered. The whole creation is. Why is that? The answer is that when human beings sinned at the very beginning, God made all of creation a visible display of the horrors of sin. Disease, degeneration, tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes, these are all part of the visual, audible, touchable images of the moral outrage of sin in our world. I think one of the most important passages about this in the Bible is in Romans 8, verse 20. Uh, And I I think it's important to this sermon because it, it confirms and clarifies what Jesus said about the creation undergoing a new birth and regeneration. This is what it says in Romans. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with, here it is, labor pains until now. There's the imagery of the new birth. The imagery of the regeneration. Creation is waiting to be born again. Just like the people of God have been born again. So if we put it all together, the picture seems to be something like this. God's purpose is that the entire creation be born again. That is the whole universe will replace its utility and corruption and disease, and degeneration, and disasters with a whole new order, a new heaven, and a new earth. This will be the great universal regeneration, the great universal new birth. When Paul uses this word in Titus 3, 5, he wants us to see it big. He wants us to see that our new birth fits together with the making new of all things. See, the newness that we have by virtue of our regeneration now is the first fruits of the greater newness we will have when our bodies are made new as a part of the universe being made new. We, we're in Romans 8 too, right in verse 23. It says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, because we've been born again by the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. So when you think of your new birth, think of it as the first installment of what is coming. Your body and the whole world will one day take part in this regeneration that's already happened within. God's final purpose is not spiritually renewed souls inhabiting decrepit bodies in a disease and disaster-ravaged world. Rather, His purpose is is a renewed world with renewed body and renewed souls that take all of our renewed senses and make them the means of enjoying and praising God beyond our wildest capacities. 
beyond our wildest dreams. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God is going to make all things well. He's going to regenerate the entire world so that it's somehow better for having once been lost. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 are true. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And corruption or the perishable cannot inherit incorruption or the imperishable. See, when you, when you become a Christian, you are being made ready for the new creation. That's why Tim Keller calls Christians time travelers. Because the power that's going to change and make new the entire world, it's in you now when you trust Christ. It's astonishing. It means that when we look at other Christians that have been born again, that have been made new, and we are interacting with one another, we are getting a the slight glimpse of the future that is to come. It's awesome. Dr. Aiken helps us to understand further here. He says, Regeneration consists negatively of the removal of filth and positively of a renewing, both brought about by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration washes us and makes us clean. The imagery of washing, however, has nothing to do with baptism, for it is the Holy Spirit who is washing us, not externally, but internally. This picture looks back to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where the prophet writes, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. When we are made clean, given new hearts, when we are born again, it is by the work of God the Holy Spirit whom has been put in us and poured out on us abundantly. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out the Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. I heard a true story recently about a wealthy man whose wife died uh, giving birth to their only son. The man never remarried, and his son was the apple of his eye, the love of his life. Tragically, though, his son, too, died too young at the age of 17 in a car accident. Eventually, the man also passed away. Because he didn't have any close relatives, his estate was to be auctioned off. So they held this big auction, which was very well attended because of the man's many riches. But oddly, the auctioneer began the bidding with a portrait of the wealthy man's son. Obviously, the painting was very personal. And so, as you might expect, in a room full of strangers, when this, when this item went up for bidding, the room was filled with silence, save for the sound of coughs and shuffling feet. Finally, though, a voice called out, breaking the silence. It was from the man's housekeeper. Twenty dollars. The auctioneer, true to form, asked for other bids. $20 going once, $20 going twice, and he brought down the gavel. Sold. 
Then, barely enough time for a heartbeat. He immediately raises the gavel once more and crashes it down, proclaiming, the auction has ended. Commotion was quickly stirred as the auctioneer read the pertinent portion of the rich man's will. The one who takes the son takes all. And so the lowly house servant inherited all of the wealthy man's estate. Paul is telling you, when you get Jesus, you get everything that is rightfully his. He who has the Son has been washed from the stains of sin by the cleansing blood of Christ. He who has the Son is indwelt with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. How much of the Holy Spirit do you get? All of it. An extravagant, abundant pouring out. You get as much of the Holy Spirit as Jesus does. Oh my. He who has the Son has all the righteousness of Christ and is justified. How do you approach God? As a blameless son. Confident. As confident as a child who would wake up a king in the middle of the night to ask for a cup of water. That's how you approach him. Boldly justified by the blood of Christ. He who has the Son has all the affection of the Father. How much of the Father's love do you have? You are loved as much as the Son, and you are loved as a Son. Friends, if you have been born again, if you've put your faith in Jesus, that means when you lay your head down to sleep at night, no matter how terrible a day it's been, no matter how good a day it's been, no matter how many good things you've done, no matter how many bad things you've done, God loves you the same. He can't love you any more than He already does in Christ. In Christ, Zephaniah three seventeen becomes true of you. It reads this way. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God sings over you. He sings. Have you been quieted by his love? He who has the Son has salvation and the certain hope of inheriting its fullness when the world is born again as he has been. How much can you hope to inherit? You inherit all. The hope of eternal life is not tawdry. It's not a cheap hope like I hope it doesn't rain today. But a certain and sure hope of something that's waited for. It's like waiting for the light of morning to chase away the night. In Christ you get everything. All that is his becomes yours. The one who takes the sun takes all. portrait of your life doesn't have to stay defaced by sin. 
in the image of Dorian Gray. It can be restored in the image of Jesus. If you will just be born again and take the Son. The one who takes the Son takes all. This is God's good work. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is staggeringly good news. It stops us in our tracks, quiets our thoughts, and we stand amazed at what you have done according to your mercy, not because we are good or worthy, but because you are a philanthropist. You you love humanity. You want to do good to us. Father, we thank you that you have stepped in and saved us from the certain death and wrath that we rightfully deserved. Thank you that you stepped in and took our place, died on our behalf. Thank you that you also lived on our behalf a perfect life, fulfilling the law. And that you continue to live in our place, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are returning to give us that final installment of the new birth. To make all of creation new as you have already begun to make us. Oh Lord, we groan inwardly for our final adoption. And we thank you for We thank you that you have saved us.